Jeremiah part two, Jesus Christ, the righteous branch. That's one of the images that Jeremiah gives us of our Savior. Now, I won't, I won't bother to go through the, the uh, flight characteristics again. We did that last time, and it would take up a lot of time. So. But one of the things I, did, I mentioned last time and I wanted to talk more about tonight was um, the difference between the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text that is used for the Old Testament in our English translations, and the Septuagint, which is a, a Greek translation of, of the Hebrew, and there are some differences between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint, and nowhere is that more apparent than in, in the book of Jeremiah. The Septuagint is about one-eighth shorter than the, the Masoretic text, so there's some material that's in the Masoretic text of our Bibles that not in the Septuagint. The materials are also arranged in a different order, most notably the oracles against the foreign nations have been relocated to a position after Jeremiah 25.13. And the order in which the various nations are introduced has also been altered. So the, the order is, is slightly different with the nations, the Gentile nations, and also it's moved further up in the book, closer to the beginning. Um, this is just a chart that, to, that shows you that in, in our... Bibles, of course, 25.13 is followed by 25.14. But in the, in the Septuagint, that, that section is moved further down and the, and the oracles against the nations are in this middle section here. So chapter 32 in our Bibles follows 25.13. So it's a, a different order. And, of course, there's less material also. We talked about this last time. I'll review it again. Some of the historical events that are happening in this period of time when the events of Jeremiah are unfolding. The Battle of Megiddo between Judah and Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, in which good king Josiah was killed. So it was during the reign of Josiah when Jeremiah began his prophecy. And King Josiah was one of the good kings of Judah, but his Life was cut short because he took on Pharaoh at the Battle of Megiddo. So right after that, Judah became sort of a, a puppet state, a, a client state of, of Egypt. And of course, that was not good because then they ran a file against the Babylonians. The Battle of Carchemish, near the same spot, near, near Megiddo, about four years later, during Jehoiakim's reign, he, the next king of Judah, and he had become a, a vassal of Egypt. He was just a, he was controlled by Egypt. But in this battle, the Egyptians were defeated by the Babylonians, and the first uh, deportation of Jews followed. That was in 605 BC when the first phase of the exile occurred. But uh, Judah had been a client state of Egypt, and then after that, Egypt was defeated. Then they became subject to Babylon. And then finally, the, the, the big event in, in the book of Jeremiah at this time is the, the capture of Jerusalem, that final phase of the exile, the destruction of the city and the temple, and the exile of most of those who are left in Jerusalem.
uh, as we can expect, the, the liberal scholars always want to claim that uh, Jeremiah didn't write the book or didn't write all of the book, but there's good reason to believe that he is the author. The title of, book, of the book claims that Jer the prophecies are those of Jeremiah in the very first verse. The character and contents of the book put the tumultuous era in which Jeremiah lived just before and during the Babylonian exile. Daniel, a contemporary of Jeremiah, he began his prophetic career later on in, in the life of Jeremiah, but um, he possessed and cited from the prophecies of this book, verifying that Daniel wrote them. He, he acknowledged that they were uh, Jeremiah's writings. And later sources, sources such as Ecclesiasticus, this is an apocryphal book, and uh, Josephus, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, his book, The Antiquities, they, they both ascribe the book to Jeremiah. In the field of archaeology, the, the Lachish letters, dating from 588 BC, that's the time when the siege of Jerusalem began, offer both linguistic and historical support for the authorship of Jeremiah. And the New Testament quotes this book as the work of Jeremiah several times. You can see some of those in Matthew and Hebrews where the book is attributed to Jeremiah. A quick review of the, of the life of Jeremiah. He was from a priestly background. He lived in the, the little village of Anathoth, which was just northeast of Jerusalem a ways, about three or four miles, I think. He was uh, predestined to the prophetic office before he was born. The book, the early, the first chapter of the book tells us that, that God had chosen him for this special mission before he was even born. He began his preaching ministry under King Josiah. His times were perilous. He lived right in that time when the, when the, the country of Judah was becoming dominated first by Egypt and then by Babylon and was finally destroyed. He spent a good deal of the time of his time in prison for his unfavorable prophecies. As usual, when you speak the truth to power, you usually don't get a, a favorable response. He shared in the sufferings of the remnant left in the land after the Babylonian captivity. So he stayed in the land. He didn't he wasn't taken in exile in Babylon. He, he stayed in the land, and then, as we'll learn later on, he was taken to Egypt. The pictures of Christ that are given to us in the book of Jeremiah, he's referred to as the fountain of living waters, the great physician, the good shepherd. We're familiar with that image from, from John chapter 10. Uh, the Righteous Branch, and of course that's where I took the, the title of, of this lesson. He's a, a descendant of David the King. He's the ideal David to come yet in the future. He's the Redeemer, of course, and he is the Lord our Righteousness. There are several object lessons that, that Jeremiah was instructed to give. He was not only 
required to preach prophecy, but he was uh, required to to uh, give lessons, to give ex- uh, concrete examples of would illustrate what his message was. The almond rod in chapter one, the boiling cauldron, also in chapter one, the marred girdle, the girdle, or it was a linen belt. He was instructed to bury it in the ground, and of course, linen, when buried in the ground, doesn't wear very well. And that was an illustration of how Judah would come to naught. The full bottle, the, the drought, the potter's vessel. We're, we're familiar with that image of him going to the, the potter's house. And, and the Apostle Paul used that same imagery in the, from, from the potter, visit to the potter's house to illustrate God's sovereignty. The broken bottle, uh, two baskets of figs. There were good, well, a basket of good figs and a basket of bad figs. And the illustration there was that the good figs represented those people of Judah who were taken into captivity in Babylon. They were actually the good figs, and the ones who were left in the land were the bad figs. Bonds and bars, uh, buying a field. Well, I'll talk more about that later on. Jeremiah buying a field. Uh, and the hidden stones in, for those who went into Egypt. Some, some stones were buried there in, in Egypt, and, and the illustration was that the, the people of Judah had fled to Egypt. And what Jeremiah was saying to them, that even here you're not going to be saved because the, the Babylonians are still going to get you even here in Egypt. And then the, the book sunk in the Euphrates, um, that's a lesson that he gave to the remnant that actually was in, in Babylon, taken ex, into exile in Babylon. So there are all these object lessons in in the book of Jeremiah. The chronology of of Jeremiah's prophecies. There are prophecies that were given before the fall of Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 39. So we have prophecies during Josiah's reign and prophecies during Jehoiakim's reign and prophecies during Zedekiah's reign. Now, one of the things that, that I want you to notice here is that these the first 12 chapters here during Josiah's reign, that's all in chronological order. But the book of, much of the book of Jeremiah is not in strictly chronological order. So you see that in Jehoiakim's reign, chapters 13 through 20, in Jehoiakim's reign, and then in chapters 21 through 24, we go to Zedekiah's reign, and then in chapters 25 through 26, we jump back to Jehoiakim's reign. And then in 27 through 34, we're down to Zedekiah again. And then we go back to Jehoiakim, 35 through 36, and then back to Zedekiah in 37 through 39. So in order to, to take this in chronological order, I'll be jumping back and forth a little bit as far as, or as, far as the chapters are concerned. So it's not all in, in strictly chronological order. And then uh, there are prophecies before the fall of Jerusalem, and then there are prophecies after the fall of Jerusalem. So Jeremiah's prophetic career extends over like a 40-year time period where he's, 
he's a prophet before Jerusalem falls, and then he's a prophet after it's taken in, the Judeans are taken into captivity. So the latter chapters of the book, 40 through 52, deal with this time after the fall of Jerusalem. There are prophecies to the remnant in Israel, the people that were left in the land, those bad things, if you will. In chapters 40 through 43, then there are prophecies to the remnant in Egypt. The people that remained in the land were later fled to Egypt, and so Jeremiah was forced to go with them, and he continued to issue prophecies to them. And then finally, there are prophecies to the remnant that was taken to Babylon. So these three geographical areas. So first we'll deal with some prophecies during Jehoiakim's reign. I'll pick this up where we, where we left off last time. So uh, Jeremiah rebuked Judah because they were not as faithful as the Rechabites to their father's command not to drink wine nor to build houses to dwell in. So Jeremiah was pointing to the Rechabites and saying, here, look at these people. They are loyal to the instructions that were given to them by their ancestor. He told them not to, to, to drink wine and to, to live a nomadic lifestyle. They, they lived in tents. They never built permanent homes. And Jeremiah said, hey, look at them. They're, they're still following his instructions to this very day, generations later. Why can't you people of Judah be loyal to the instructions that were given to you by God? So he was contrasting the Rechabites with, with the people of Judah. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing on Judah and on all the inhabitants of Jerusalem all the evil that I have pronounced against them. So because Judah refused to obey God, refused to live according to the instructions that he had given them, they were going to be punished. And as we move through the book of Jeremiah, you can see how this becomes more and more certain. First, they're given the opportunity to repent, but they just keep rejecting it and keep rejecting it. And finally, there's no, there's no more uh, mercy. There's no more grace. They, they, need, they have to be punished. God commanded Jeremiah to take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all of the nations. So later on in the book, we're going to see that it's not only Israel and Judah that's punished, but the other nations, the Gentile nations, are going to be punished as well. It was read to King Jehoiakim, column by column. I talked about this a little bit last time. I referred to it anyway. And his response was prompt. He cut them off with a penknife and threw them into the fire in the brazier. But God commanded Jeremiah to rewrite the scroll and to add many similar words. So as the, the, the scroll was being read to the king, he would cut off part of it and throw it in the fire. And then some more would be read and cut that off and throw it in the fire. And of course, um, God's word is not uh, disposed of that easily, is it? He may be able to destroy the physical paper or parchment that it's written on, but you're not going to destroy the word of God. So then we have prophecies during Zedekiah's reign. The Babylonians invaded Judah in 605 BC. That was when, when the exile began. It happened in three stages, three phases. 
taking Jehoiakim captive. He was the king at that time, uh, just as Jeremiah had predicted. Jeremiah had predicted that Jehoiakim would go into captivity. Zedekiah, the last of the kings of Judah's kings, it's easy to remember that because his name starts with a Z, the last, so he's the last king. The last of Judah's kings was a little more was a little more than a puppet of Babylon's Nebuchadnezzar. So uh, Jehoiakim had been taken captive, and, and Zedekiah was put in power, but he was under the strict control of, of Babylon. During these dark days in Judah's history, Jeremiah uttered several more prophecies. First, he issued prophecies about Judah's political future in chapters 21 through 24 and 27 through 29. These prophecies were both unpleasant and hopeful. On the unpleasant side were the predictions about Zedekiah's downfall and Jerusalem's destruction and the curse on Jeconiah's heirs. I'll, I'll talk more about that when we get to the New Testament because uh, Jeconiah was, was a king for a, a short period of time, and he goes by several different names. Um, but a curse was issued on him that his descendants wouldn't, would never occupy the throne. And so that figures into the, uh, the genealogies that were given about the Messiah, about Christ in the New Testament, in the Gospels. So I'll talk more about that when we get to the Gospels. Uh, how that comes into play. It comes into play as far as uh, we're giving one genealogy that we think was Joseph's genealogy and one genealogy that we think was Mary's genealogy. And there, there's a split. They go a different route with Mary's genealogy. And so perhaps that was had something to do with this curse that was put on Jeconiah. Well, I'll talk more about that later. All the all ungodly prophets and priests who held out false hope to Judah came under the woeful condemnation of God. So there were prophets and priests who were saying, "Oh, don't worry about the Babylonians. God will God will protect us." But of course, they continued in their ways of heresy and apostasy. So God was not going to protect them. He was going to bring these false prophets and priests under the same condemnation that he was the rest of Judah. Nevertheless, there remained a ray of hope for the exiled remnant in Babylon. The Lord promised, I will set my eyes upon them for good, and I will bring them back to to this land. I will build them up and not tear them down. I will plant them and not uproot them. So there was a promise that the people of God would return to the land. But the false prophets who said there were, would be no captivity were severely condemned by Jeremiah. The only consolation that was offered was that a faithful remnant would return after 70 years. I talked a little bit about the 70 years last time, and I'll, I'll talk more about it later on here. Then there were prophecies about Judah's spiritual future. And this is the this contains the famous passage 
probably the best known uh, passage of Jeremiah about the, the new covenant. The immediate future, political future was bleak, but the spiritual future beyond that was bright. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah. And at that time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. For behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You're probably very familiar with those comforting words. And despite the imminent destruction of Jerusalem, Jeremiah sealed his faith in the future by buying property for his relatives. This was an amazing thing to Jeremiah's contemporaries that he would be buying property. He's prophesying that the, the destruction is imminent. Why would he be buying property if he thought that Judah was about to be destroyed? Well, it was an example that he was giving to show that God would return his people to the land and how wonderful that would be and how certain those promises were. The day was coming in which God would cause a righteous branch to spring forth for David and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it shall be called, The Lord is Our Righteousness. And we know now that that wonderful time is yet in the future, when our Messiah, Christ, returns. And then, finally, there are prophecies about Judah's immediate future. Jeremiah predicted that the Babylonians would capture Jerusalem, but would not kill Zedekiah the king. Jeremiah was thrown in prison as a traitor for his prophecies, so they were not well received. And eventually, he was cast into a cistern to die. He was thrown into this deep pit with a mire, mud at the bottom, and he sank into it up to his shoulders, up to his uh, armpits, I should say. Um, he was just left there to, to starve to death. I mean, they, they threw him in there. We weren't going to give him any food or water. He was just supposed to starve to death. But the king came to his rescue and delivered him. When the Babylonians broke through the walls of Jerusalem... They captured King Zedekiah as he attempted to flee, and they destroyed Jerusalem just as Jeremiah had forecast. These the prophecies after the fall of Jerusalem, these last prophecies fall into three categories, as I mentioned before, denoting the geographical location of the people involved, the guerrilla remnant uh, remaining in Palestine, in the land of Israel, after, Babylonians after Babylon's conquest, those who fled to Egypt, as Jeremiah did, he didn't want to flee to Egypt, but they took him forcefully against his will. 
and those taken into Babylon in 586 BC when Jerusalem was destroyed and then there were two earlier exiles in 597 and 605 when others had been taken into captivity. That first one in 605 BC, that was when Daniel and his companions were taken into captivity. And the one in 597, that's when Ezekiel was taken into captivity. So they were taken into captivity before Jerusalem was destroyed. Then there are prophecies to the remnant in Israel, the people that were left in the land. Jeremiah was given the choice. He, because, he had, uh, because he had urged Judah to, to be loyal to Babylon, the, the Babylonians were merciful to him. They, they gave him the choice. Do you want to stay in the land or do you want to go to Babylon? So he stayed in the land. And a man named Gedaliah was the governor that Babylon appointed to, to rule over the land, to administer that region. He's the, he's the puppet governor that, that Babylon had chosen. But Ishmael, he, he's a royal descendant, he's a descendant of a royal family, he killed Gedaliah. He assassinated him and he, many other Jews as well. Yochanan, uh, and this is the Hebrew name that is called John in the New Testament. It's not the same person, but that same name, Yochanan. Uh, and all of the other remaining military leaders were exhorted by Jeremiah to re remain faithful to the Lord and stay in the land rather than go down into Egypt. So they, they did... Um, after Ishmael and his men assassinated Gedaliah, he was eventually killed. But then the, the people that remained in the land thought, well, what are we going to do now? Babylon's not going to like this, that we killed their governor. They're going to they're take revenge on us. They're going to retaliate. So they were wanting to, to go to Egypt. So they went to Jeremiah and asked what they should do. But they disbelieved Jeremiah's prophecy. So Jeremiah told them to stay in the land, but they decided they were going to go to Egypt anyway. They are going to hightail it out of there because they figured retaliation was coming from Babylon. So in capturing him and all the people fled to Egypt. So these military men that remained in the land, they, they grabbed all the people, they grabbed Jeremiah and fled to Egypt. So... Thereupon, Jeremiah predicted that Nebuchadnezzar would either capture or slay them. So they thought they would be safe down in Egypt, but Jeremiah said, no, even here. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come and get you. So there, there are prophecies to the remnant in Egypt, these people that, that fled to Egypt. Down in Egypt, the remnant burned incense to the Queen of Heaven. So they still hadn't learned their lesson. They were still practicing idolatry. Their, their reasoning seemed to be, well, the reason we went into captivity is because we were, weren't worshiping these pagan gods enough. So well, let's do it more. <laughs> uh, there, there's some uh, debate about who this queen of heaven was. Was it Astarte or Ishtar or Anat or Asherah or some composite of all of them? Uh, we don't know for sure. 
but obviously it was a pagan goddess. Jeremiah gave them the word of the Lord. I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt, as I have punished Jerusalem with a sword, with famine, and pestilence, so that none of the remnant of Judah who have come to live in the land of Egypt shall escape or survive or return to the land of Judah, except some fugitives. And as far as we know, uh, Jeremiah died in Egypt. He, he never did come back to the land of Israel. As far as we know, that's, that's where he died. Then some prophecies were given to the remnant that had gone to Babylon, that was taken into captivity in Babylon. The final section of prophecies in, is directed to the Babylonian captives. Jeremiah forecast the fall of Jehoiakim and Judah, followed by the invasion of Egypt by Nebuchadnezzar. So eventually the, the forces of Babylon did go down into Egypt. People who had fled to Egypt weren't safe there. And then surrounding nations, too, were to come under God's judgments. The Philistines would be overrun. Moab would be laid waste. And the Ammonites would be dispossessed. And even Edom's pride destroyed. So God not only issued prophecies against Israel, against Judah, but he also issued oracles against the Gentile nations. Both Damascus and Kedar would be smitten by Nebuchadnezzar, and Elam would be cho chosen. This judgment on wicked enemies was intended to encourage the remnant with a realization of the justice of God. So God was telling the people of Judah, yes, you've been punished for your sins, but these Gentile nations aren't going to get off scot-free either. Even the ones that I've used as instruments for your punishment they will in turn be punished. Even mighty Babylon would one day finally fall to a nation from the north and Judah would be stirred to repentance. The book of Jeremiah concludes with an epilogue that parallels the account of Jerusalem's fall in 2 Kings 24 and 25. This epilogue was probably included, probably after the death of Jeremiah by his scribe, Baruch, uh, to de demonstrate that Jeremiah's ministry and message were fully vindicated by history. So all of these things that, that Jeremiah had prophesied would happen to Judah did come to pass. The chapter begins with a negative assessment of Zedekiah's reign. He's that last king again. And observes that this king rebelled against Babylon. Jeremiah had urged him to be loyal to Babylon, but he, even though he had been installed by the Babylonians, he turned against them. This defiant act promoted a Babylonian siege of Jerusalem in January 588 B.C. The siege lasted for quite some time. The siege continued until July 586 B.C. When the Babylonians finally breached Jerusalem's defenses and invaded the city. They captured the fleeing king, Zedekiah. He, he tried to sneak away in the, in the darkness, but they caught him. They killed his sons and officials. They put out his eyes and took him away to Babylon. 
So they killed his sons in front of him, so that, and then they put out his eyes. So that, the last thing that he saw was his sons being killed. In August 586, the Babylonians burned the temple and other buildings. They tore down the city's walls and took the upper classes away into exile, leaving only the poorest of the people in the land. Before destroying the temple, the soldiers removed its bronze, gold, and silver items, which were taken to Babylon. And in the book of Daniel, which we'll come to later, remember that famous incident about the handwriting on the wall? When Belshazzar is having a feast and he's using the vessels from the temple. So this is when they were, when those vessels of the temple were taken to Babylon. The commander of the Babylonian army took Sariah, the chief priest, as well as other religious and civil leaders, to Nebuchadnezzar, who ordered them to be, all of them, to be executed. The book ends on a more positive note, as it tells how Evil Merodach, Nebuchadnezzar's successor, so he was the next Babylonian ruler after Nebuchadnezzar, in 562 or 561 B.C., he released the exiled king Jehoiachin from prison and treated him kindly. Remember now, Jehoiachin wasn't the last king, but he had been taken, uh, taken away captive to Babylon earlier, in one of the earlier phases of the, of the exile. But the book ends by telling us that he, he was released from prison and treated kindly. I mentioned last time that the 70 years... I wanted to talk a little bit more about it this time. The 70 years captivity in, in Babylon. There are actually two different passages in, in the book of Jeremiah that refer to this 70-year period. In chapter 25, it says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon in, in that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declare, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. So God's wrath is going to be poured out on Babylon after a 70-year captivity. And then again in, in chapter 29, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed, for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill, fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And I showed you this chart last time. It's a chart that's taken from K. Arthur's uh, Inductive Study Bible. Um, so here's, here's the kings of Judah. In um, the 70 year captivity, and I told you it's in three phases. In 605, that's when Daniel and his friends went into captivity. 597, Ezekiel, and 10,000 captives are taken to Babylon. And then finally in 586, we have the destruction of Jerusalem. So there's controversy about when does this 70-year period begin and end. And among those who 
who do take the seven years literally, as I do, um, there, there are two main views. Uh, this study Bible takes the view that the seven years begins with 605 BC, the first phase of the captivity. Uh, as uh, Nancy Mohan mentioned last time, there is, there is another view. So these are the two views of, of the seven years. Uh, one is that it begins with 605 BC, the first phase of the exile, and ends with the return of the exiles to Judea in 535 BC. Um, the other view that's held by conservative scholars is that the 70 years begins with 586 BC, when, when Jerusalem is destroyed, the temple is destroyed, and then it goes to 516 BC uh, when the second temple was dedicated. So, so even, after, even after the exiles returned around 535 BC, it, the, the 70 years doesn't end until the dedication of the second temple. And I think it is possible that uh, since there are two different passages in Jeremiah that refer to the 70-year period, it is possible that one refers to one of these and the other one refers to the other. So it's possible that the 70 years has two, there's two different 70-year periods, is what I'm trying to say. Because, um, so this one talks about the land being waste, so... So perhaps that is the one that begins in 586 B.C. and goes to the, the dedication of the, of the temple. And perhaps this other one, uh, talking about 70 years are completed for Babylon, that may be, be referring to the time from that first phase of the captivity to the, uh, to the return of the exiles. So it could be that, that both are true. Atbash writing. What in the world is Atbash writing? This, this is something that I wasn't familiar with before, but it's, it's an interesting thing to me. Uh, I hope it will be to you. Uh, there are three different examples of this Atbash writing in the book of Jeremiah. The letters of a word are replaced by the corresponding letters when the alphabet is read in reverse order. Now that probably doesn't mean very much to you, so it's, it's probably easier for me to, to show you what Atbash writing is rather than try to explain it. <laughs> I'll begin by showing you how this would work with the English alphabet. Okay, so up here we have the letters of the alphabet, A through Z, right? A is the first letter of the alphabet, Z is the last letter of the alphabet. With Atbash writing, what you do is you flip it around so that the first letter of the alphabet is now Z and the last letter of the alphabet is A. So you, you put them in reverse order, you flip them around. And then you make words using that reversal. In other words, wherever you see an A in a word, you put a Z. Wherever you see a B in a word, you put a Y. Wherever you see a C in a word, you put an X. So it's a cipher, a code. 
So, for example, if you, if you have the message attack at dawn, if you put it in Atbash writing, it's Z, G, G, Z, X, P, Z, G, W, Z, D, M. So, to most people, that would just be a meaningless gibberish of hodgepodge of letters. But it's a cipher, a code meaning attack at dawn. Okay, so the same thing happens in Jeremiah with the Hebrew alphabet. So the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Aleph. The last letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Tav. So when you flip that around, when you place them in reverse order, then the first letter of the alphabet is now Tav, and the last letter is Aleph. So the letters of the Hebrew alphabet are just in reverse order. And then, whenever you have Hebrew words, you use the corresponding letters. For example, wherever a word has an Aleph, you put a Tav. Wherever it has a bet, you put a sheen. Wherever it has a gimel, you put a resh. So use the, um, the reverse alphabet to make words. Now, where, how that happens in the book of Jeremiah, there are these three examples. In Jeremiah 25, 26, it says, and after all of them, this is the the passage talking about the, the punishment of the Gentile nations. And after all of them, the king of Sheshak will drink it too. Jeremiah 51, 41, how Sheshak will be captured, the boast of the whole earth seized. And then there's another example in Jeremiah 51, 1. See, I will stir up the spirit of a destroyer against Babylon and the people of Lev Kamai. Well, there's no, there's no place called Sheshak. So why is Jeremiah talking about Sheshak? And there's no people called Lev Kamai. Well, this is Atbash writing. Some have suggested that the Atbash code was used in Jeremiah to protect the prophet or a later scribe who copied the book from the wrath of the Babylonian Chaldean officials. So in other words, either with Jeremiah himself or with a later scribe who was copying the book, we're not sure whether this was originally part of Jeremiah or whether it was something that was changed later on. But in other words, you write it in code, the name Babylon or the name of the Chaldeans, so that the Babylonian officials won't know you're talking about them. <laughs> so that, that could be the reason that the Atbash writing was used in those, in those verses. So here, here's uh, how this Atbash writing comes about. So in, in Hebrew, the word for Babylon is Lavel. It's, it's Beit, Beit, Lamed. But once you use Atbash writing and you substitute for them, then it's, it's not bet, bet, lamed, it's sheen, sheen, uh, kaf. So then it's not bevel anymore, it's sheshak. So that's why the word sheshak is used rather than the word Babylon.
And then with the that Lev Kamai, the people, people of Lev Kamai. The word for Chaldea in Hebrew is Kasti. Uh, Kaf, uh, Shin, Shin, and uh, Dalet, Yod. But when you use Atbash writing, then it becomes Lamed, Bet, Kaf, should be Kof, and Mem. And there's a Yod on the end here, but Mem. So then it becomes Lev Kamai. Kas D becomes Lev Kamai. So this is just another case of Atbash writing. So now you know more than you ever wanted to know about Atbash writing. Um, incidentally, where the where the uh, the name Atbash comes from. Uh, so the Hebrew equivalent of A is Aleph, and then the Tav at the end here, B, Bet, and Sh Shin. So that's where the word Atbash comes from. Some parallels in, in the book of, of Jeremiah, and there are quite a few. First, Jeremiah and Moses. Jeremiah appears in the book as a kind of second Moses. Moses set the model for the prophets who came after him, just as God had put his words in the mouth of Moses so that what he spoke was in truth the very words of God. So God put his words into the mouth of the prophet Jeremiah. And both Moses, uh, Jeremiah and Moses, uh, one thing that they have in common is that they both said, well, I, I can't speak. I'm not a, I'm not a good speaker. You, you can't. You can't possibly use me. But, of course, God had plans for both of them, even though they both raised the, that objection that they couldn't speak. Uh, Moses had been called at the outset as a prophet to a Gentile nation. Remember, Moses' first job was to go to Pharaoh and his uh, magicians. So he was sent to uh, a Gentile nation before he led Israel out of Egypt. In fact, mirrored in Jeremiah's own call, he was sent also to the Gentiles, as well as to the people of Israel. Moses was also a prophetic intercessor. His duty was not simply to represent God to the people, but also to re represent the people to get before God. Moses interceded for the nation after the rebellion at, at Kadesh, uh, when they wouldn't go into the land. He offered his own life at Sinai. He, he offered to, to be destroyed himself, to be cut off from God's people rather than, than have uh, Israel be destroyed. And he pleaded for his sister Miriam, so he was an intercessor. Jeremiah would again follow the example set by Moses, but with an ironic twist. Jeremiah, who had interceded with God over many years on behalf of the, the nation, the rebellious nation of Judah, he's now commanded, finally, to intercede no longer. God's irrevocable judgment was about to break out against the nation, and he would hear their prayers no more. 
Moses had saved the nation from destruction through his intercessory prayer. But now Jeremiah was commanded to no longer exercise this responsibility. Moses had once led the nation out of Egypt, and now in the end, Jeremiah returns there. Thus we have come full circle in the history of the nation. As at the time before the entrance into the land, there's no, no longer a state, a king, a priest, a temple, or even a population. They've gone back to Egypt. Because of their faithfulness, Ebed-Melech and Baruch, like Caleb and Joshua before them, are contrasted to the generations of which they are a part. Uh, Ebed-Melech was the man who pulled Jeremiah up out of the cistern. He'd sunk so far down into the mud that they had to put some rags under his armpits to pull him out of there. But Ebed-Melech was, was the faithful man who, who rescued Jeremiah from the, from the pit, from the cistern. And Baruch, of course, was the scribe of tribe of Jeremiah. So just like Caleb and Joshua were to Moses, they, these were two men that remained faithful. Also, uh, parallels between the prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Hosea. Uh, incidentally, this, it just reminded me, one of, one of the things I was going to talk about was, or just mention is that Jeremiah is the longest of the prophetic books. It's, it's longer than any other prophetic book. In fact, Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, is longer than all 12 minor prophets put together. So it, it is the, the longest book. I mean, Isaiah has more chapters, 66, but still Jeremiah is longer even though it only has 52 chapters, it's still longer than Isaiah. The, the two prophets, Jeremiah and Hosea, made common use of some figures and language. It is particularly in Jeremiah chapters 2 and 3 that Jeremiah's debt to Hosea is prominent. Hosea spoke often of God's loyalty, faithfulness, his method to Israel just as Hosea had typified Israel as an adulterous wife, so too Jeremiah described Israel as an unfaithful wife, turned to pursue her lovers. Jeremiah longs that Israel return to the devotion, the chesed, of her youth as a bride in the wilderness. But like Gomer, the, the wife of Hosea, Israel too became promiscuous and a harlot even though the Lord would remain as her husband. Jeremiah longs that Israel return to the devotion. Jeremiah's instruction to Israel, break up your unplowed ground and do not sow among thorns. That may be a citation of Hosea 10.12. So we find that exact same statement almost in Jeremiah and Hosea. Both prophets were concerned with the knowledge of God. Hosea complained that there was no knowledge of God in the land, and that the people were destroyed for the lack of knowledge. 
You may be familiar with that verse about my people are destroyed for, for lack of knowledge. Through Jeremiah, God complained that those who dealt with the law did not know him and declared, my people are fools. They do not know me. Both prophets foresaw a day when Israel would know the Lord. They both speak of that time. Both prophets indicted the nation for lists of offenses that violate the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, the law of God. Both prophets took Israel, took Israel Judah to task for that. Jeremiah was a man who knew great sorrow of heart as he saw the divine judgment about to overtake Jerusalem. In tradition, he became known as the weeping prophet. I'm sure you've heard that before. One cannot but wonder if Luke does not have the image of Jeremiah in mind when he writes that Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem, lamenting that the city would not experience peace, but rather a siege and destruction. And it's interesting that when Jerusalem came under siege by the Romans, it was on that same day of the year that the Romans captured the city of Jerusalem on that very same day of the year as the Babylonians had. Jesus' cleansing of the temple draws its rationale from Jeremiah. The, the statement about uh, the temple should be a, a house of prayer, but you made it a den of robbers, that statement is, is taken from Jeremiah. There are a number of parallels between Matthew 23, 24, uh, that lead up to the Olivet Prophecy. And there's a parallel between that and, and Jeremiah's temple sermons. Two different occasions, Jeremiah delivered a sermon at the temple. God had sent the prophets to Jerusalem, but the people refused to listen. Jesus also sent prophets to the nation. And we can read about that in, in Matthew. That Jesus said that he had sent prophets to the nation. And of course, that's just one more uh, example of, of the fact that Jesus was not just a man. He was God, the God who had sent the prophets. Jeremiah warns about shedding innocent blood in the temple precincts. And after his temple sermon, his own death becomes the issue. People wanted to do away with him. Jesus also teaches about the murder of the prophets and the shedding of innocent blood. And it is his blood, his own blood, that will be shed in the city. Jeremiah had warned that the temple could, uh, could be abandoned just in the same way that Shiloh, the place where the, the tabernacle had been erected, had been abandoned. As he himself left the temple for things for the last time, Jesus also warned the people that their house, their temple, would be left desolate. 
Jeremiah and Stephen. Stephen repeated Jeremiah's denunciation of Israel as uncircumcised in heart and ear in an address that cost him his life. So in that sermon that Stephen gave just before he was stoned, he referred to that same expression that, that Israel was uncircumcised in heart and ear, an expression that Jeremiah had used. And I mentioned this earlier, that Paul took the lessons from Jeremiah's visit to the house of the potter as instruction about God's sovereignty and calling the Gentiles. So God is sovereign over mankind. He can do what he wills with mankind since he is the potter, we are the clay. And finally, in, in the book of Revelation, Jeremiah is used there as well. There are about 40 direct quotations of the book in the New Testament, the book of Jeremiah. Most of them are in, in the book of Revelation in connection with, uh, with the destruction of Babylon. So you can see that those statements about Babylon being destroyed in Jeremiah 50, verse 8, Jeremiah 50, verse 32, Jeremiah 51, verses 49 and 50. Those, uh, that same imagery is used to refer to the destruction of Babylon, the, the Roman Empire, the and also the revived Roman Empire that will yet appear on this earth. Uh, the imagery of that destruction of Babylon is also used in the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. We'll close now with a word of prayer. We thank you so much for this book that you have given us, the book of, Revela of Jeremiah, which contains so much prophetic information that was fulfilled and that which will yet be fulfilled in the end times and with the establishment of the millennial kingdom under your dear son, Jesus Christ. We ask that you will help us to remain faithful to our calling and that you will help us to prepare our hearts for your continued work with us, with your church, and with the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.